Good morning, everyone. So encouraging to hear that, that singing. And we can turn now in this time of worship to continue in worship by looking to the Lord, what he has revealed to us in this book of Malachi. If you will, turn again to what Jake read for us earlier today, to the Old Testament book of Malachi. If you don't know where to go, go to Matthew 1 and turn back a couple of pages, and you'll get to where you need to be. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and you may have thought that you were coming today for another sermon on Romans, and we are teaching through the book of Romans. We're taking a break here in November and December, right now in November, to focus on generosity. If you didn't know that about West Park, we do that every year. We, we pause in November with our, our current preaching series in order to focus on the biblical priority of grace-filled generosity. And I am both eager for that time, but also humbled by that time. You know, you, you don't really step on toes in the church until you start talking about money. And one of the things today that this text of scripture brings out is ways that people in the time of Malachi were not being faithful to God with their money. And so we'll talk about that today. But ultimately, throughout this month, in the three sermons that you'll hear here or in the auditorium, they're all going to be on these same themes. And today's theme is trust me and test me. Trust me and test me. This is what God says to the people in the book of Malachi. And we want to grow in our understanding of what that original message was and of how it relates to us here at West Park this morning. Now, a question that often comes to mind, especially right now in 2022, whenever the church starts to talk about money, not only is it a very personal thing to start talking about, but especially in this year, it seems like maybe an inappropriate thing to bring up right now. When you think about what is happening in our economy, you know, the words that are floating around out there are inflation and recession. And I've had to grow to understand some things about those terms. I don't always understand economic terms. I'm a pastor. Um, and as much as we depend on money like everyone else just for our daily needs, I didn't really know what made an inflation happen or what made a recession happen. You know, I think in order to have a recession or a, an inflation, you know, the, the value of, of demand, or the demand goes up, but the value of money goes down. I think that's right. And if that's not right, then somebody can correct me afterwards. All I know is right now, we're experiencing in certain categories things that are going up in price and our money is just not going as far as it used to. Now, in order to really have an inflation, you've got to have that happening in several categories. So, for example, if it's just at the grocery stores, it's not really indicative of an inflation. It might just be they're skyrocketing, jacking up prices. But if it's happening in grocery stores and at the gas pump, if it's happening in the housing market, if it's happening pretty much everywhere, you know that inflation is on the rise. And in order to have a recession, you've got to have two quarters of the year in a row, at least, of high inflation and poor economic times. 
been a lot of debate about where exactly we are as a country. But I do know this, and everybody that I've talked to, things are getting more expensive and it's getting harder and harder to pay for things like the basic necessities. The more I research this online, I'm seeing those who do talk about it say that for years they've had no credit card debt, but in the recent months they have credit card debt as they are seeking to pay off basic utility costs and mortgage payments. So if we're getting into that kind of a situation, we know that it's hard to talk to people right now about their generosity. And I realize that you may be here today facing that same pressure economically. And you're here because you are one of God's people and you want to be faithful, you want to be generous, while at the same time, it's difficult to know exactly how to go about that and to do that depending on your circumstances here today. What I want you to know is this basic principle. The Lord deserves all his people have. And his people are blessed when they give it. That's a basic principle that comes out of Malachi 3 as we go through the verses that Jake read for us earlier. Uh, the Lord deserves all his people have. And on the flip side, his people are blessed when they give it all that they have. So we're going to go through three points today from this message in Malachi 3, 6 to 12. And we're going to look at the Lord's commitment to his people, his charge against his people, and his challenge to his people. And by the time we leave today, I hope to be, uh, begin that process of practical challenge to each of us about our current level of generous giving to the Lord. On weeks two and three, um, week two here in the hub, James Lynch will share with us something from the story of Elijah and the, the widow of Zarephath who did not have the oil and the bread to sustain her and her son, let alone Elijah, and what God did in that time period. So more application will come from that, and we'll conclude by going to 2 Corinthians to talk about the, the generous giving that God outlines in a particular case and time in the, the New Testament church um, and how we can grow learning about the generosity of Jesus and to be generous ourselves. So look at it this way today. We're, we're moving through sections of scripture that highlight this generosity that is indicative of God's people responding to him in true faith and dependence and an expression of their trust in him. And you may hear the message today and take some things that will build on that foundation of generosity, but it may not be a complete picture today. Take what you get today and by faith turning to God, depend on him for how you can grow today in one expression of generosity by the time we end. And I'll, I'll conclude with that here in just a little bit. Turn to Malachi 3 and look with me at verses 6 and 7 for the first point, the Lord's commitment to his people. I am so glad that this section about generosity in the Old Testament begins with a declaration of God. Look at verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. 
He says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. What is the Lord's commitment to his people? Well, on the one hand, he will not change. God will not change. It's that first statement that he makes. For I, the Lord, do not change. This is perhaps the greatest declaration that God ever makes about his immutability. That's just a big, fancy theological word that means he doesn't change. It's a foundational aspect in systematic theology. God does not change ever. And you and I can't really grasp what that must be like. You and I experience changes all the time. Every day. You know, Tuesday is election day. And if there's one thing we can count on, it's that the seat of political authority won't stay the same for very long. There are changes that keep happening. Wars and conflicts, like we heard about from Emil Toder today. You know, changes are happening all the time around the world. Technology changes. Pretty soon, this phone that I didn't buy too terribly long ago will change, and something newer will come, and it'll be time to update. I resist that as long as I can, but that affects me too. I think about, you know, when I was a kid, friendships changed all the time, especially my best friend seems to, seem to fluctuate from one to the other, I can remember one time when I was like in third grade, I went out to play Foursquare with my friends and expecting my best friend, you know, to let me in the game. But he informed me when I got out there that I was no longer his best friend, but Tim was his best friend. You know, young people, I can identify with any angst that you might feel when your friendships change and difficulties happen and things come up and you just, you just feel that tension. We always feel that tension. So it's another thing entirely to encounter a being who has never and will not change. He is now, and he always will be who he always has been. That, in essence, is this word, this name, Lord, in all capital letters in verse 6. Look at that again. L-O-R-D. What this means is the essence of what God said in Exodus 3.14, when God called Moses to go out from the wilderness where he was and back into Egypt to bring out the people of God to worship him on the mountain that God would choose. You know, Moses tried every excuse in the book in order to get out of that high charge. And at one point he asked God, well, who is it that I am to say is sending me to you? And God said in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And he said, say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Those words, I am, is in essence that name, Lord. It's that rendering of the Lord's name, I am, which has a wealth and a range of meanings. But in essence, it means I always will be who I always have been. God's being is unchangeable. And this is good news 
Because in the time of Malachi, the people had been through lots and lots of changes. Now, in this time period, it is called the post-exilic time period, post-exile. It means that in the exile of Judah, when they were taken up into Babylon, and they lived there for decades, now, in waves, many of them have come back, and they are now back in Jerusalem. They are living in the territory of Judah. But if you think about the territorial map with the powerful nations that are all around them and how it has always been for that area, it's just like a little postage size stamp on that map. And when the people got back into Jerusalem, they didn't have much money. They had to start from scratch and to rebuild some things inside of the walls that had been built by another generation. And they began to kind of experience again this rebuilding of their nation, but with much fear and much frustration about what they'd been through. But God comes to them with the message, and he says, despite your many sins, despite your determination to go away from me, I do not change, and that is why you, sons of Jacob, are not consumed. The good news for you is that because I am faithful to myself, because in my determination to remain the same, I cannot change, you are not consumed in the failures of your sin. You are not wiped out from the face of the earth. You are back in the land. And in this time period, it was significant for God to say this to his people. They needed that encouragement that he was committed to them to that level. Now, I'm encouraged that God does not change, but he also, does, the fact that he will not change doesn't mean that he doesn't respond to humans and what we do. Now, God will respond to his people's sin. He will respond to his people's sin. And he tells us in verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. The Lord reveals throughout the, gospel, the, the book of Malachi the legacy of post-exile Israel. And throughout Malachi, God has six indictments or charges that he lays out as a prosecuting attorney to Israel and saying how they have failed him and they have not followed him and they have not gone in the way of his law. God offers many things. Here are the kinds of things that he says throughout Malachi that the people have done. They are offering sick and bruised animals for sacrifices and holding back their best. The priests were perverting God's teaching, leading people away from the holiness and greatness of God. Men married women who worshiped foreign gods, which was explicitly forbidden by God. Men, including the priests, did not love their own wives, but divorced them. It was very typical and common in that day. They were guilty of charging God with injustice or that God was rewarding evildoers. And in our text today, God lays a charge that the people were withholding from him what they owed him. And as we said at the beginning, 
God is worthy of our everything, of all that we have. And God's people are blessed when they give it. But these people were not giving it. So in this particular case right now, as we think about how God will respond to his people's sin, I want to leave just by pointing out that God says, return to me and I will return to you. God's intention in dealing with his people's sin is not merely to expose it and then to punish. God's intention by revealing his people's sin is so that the relationship that they have with him can be restored. This language, return to me and I will return to you, is like what we read in in the book of James in the New Testament, James chapter 4. God says that people who have erred in sin, you know, the pathway forward for them is to draw near to God, and then he will draw near to us. To do that even before you cleanse yourself of sin, or even knowing how to identify all that sin, God says, return to me. This is relational language. And so the relationship language comes to us here this morning at West Park, where God, through an ancient prophecy, revealed the sin of the people of Israel. And like God deals with his people in one generation, God deals with his people in a successive and further generations. We can receive the counsel that God gives. And I want to go to what the Lord particularly charged his people with in the second point now. The Lord's charge against his people. Malachi chapter 3, picking up in verse 7, is a question and answer session where God anticipates questions that the people will ask and he answers them. The end of verse 7, where God says, return to me and I will return to you, the people then would say, how shall we return? And God answers, verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And God answers, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The Lord's charge against his people is this. You have robbed me and are cursed. You have robbed me and are cursed. That particular sin that God says the whole nation of Israel had committed and and caused them to be distanced from God, that prevented God's kingdom from being rebuilt was that they were robbing God. Now, in the question and answer format, God provides the crystal clarity that the people needed to repent. What does he say they are robbing him of? They are robbing him of the tithe. They have withheld from God what they owed him in terms of the tithe. Now let's talk about the tithe for a minute. That usually comes up in our discussions of our generosity. And it could be very easy just to lay down a law from the Old Testament onto New Testament people. And I don't want to err in that way. It could be very easy to command God's people to do certain things that God himself does not say. So let's understand what this means. First of all, the tithe means literally a tenth. If you've been around churches long enough, you might know that. A tenth. Um, God had instituted the tithe 
and he had tied it to the nation of Israel as a means to supply the priests with food and provisions and to better fund the construction and upkeep of the temple. Again, the tithe was what God instituted for the nation of Israel so that the priests could receive food and provisions for their daily tasks and so that the temple could receive the funds necessary for the construction and the upkeep of it. In Leviticus 2730, we see the Lord say, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So God was saying when he instituted the tithe for Israel that the first tenth of everything that Israel gathered belonged to God. So if you consider if someone received in that time period sheep or cattle or had a grove of olive trees or had figs growing in abundance, whatever it was, all right? And that was accounted to be in excess of around 50,000 current dollars, right? The first tenth of that would belong to God, which would be $5,000, right? I'm, I'm a pastor, not a mathematician. I usually use my iPhone calculator for such computations. So they would give that $5,000 in value, whether it would be cattle or the produce of the land, maybe their wheat, and bring it into the storehouse, and it would have been a big deal. I read further in, a, in an article by Professor Thomas Schreiner from the Southern Baptist uh, Theological Seminary. He wrote in an article on the validity of the tithe for today that in the time of Israel, what we might assume was Israel giving a total of 10%, really it's actually difficult to discern how much was given. Get this. Some think the Israelites gave 14 tithes over seven years. Others believe they gave 12. Regardless, when we add the required tithes together, the amount certainly exceeded 10%. In fact, the number was probably somewhere around 20% per year. The people of God, when they would actually give all that God required, were giving in excess of 10%. Another article that I read um, of New Testament scholar William Barclay wrote that there is potentially 24.6% of their yearly income that they were giving to God over a period of time. Now, this is, this is staggering when we think about it. Does that raise the stakes of what we are to do from 10% of our yearly income or monthly income to 24.6 or maybe 20%? I don't want us to stumble over percentages or numbers at this point. I want you to realize what God had instituted for the nation of Israel. And when God speaks in Malachi 3, the temple of Solomon had been destroyed, the people carried off into exile, and after decades... When they're back, they have seen the temple reconstructed, right? That was covered and done back in Haggai, right? Haggai was a, a contemporary, just 
by about 100 years or so from Malachi's time. And he had prophesied, and in his day, the people had returned but not built the temple. Now in Malachi, the temple is rebuilt, but it's in disrepair. It's not being kept up. The priests are not getting what God says they are to get. The people weren't giving anywhere near 20% and probably not even 10%. And God lets them know that this is a personal crime against him. He was their maker and provider, yet they had robbed him. This staggers my mind as if robbing God was even possible. It's unthinkable. Yet all that we have belongs to God. And if we withhold any of it, it is a crime against God. Robbing of God. These people obviously at the base level were not trusting God and entrusting themselves to him to be provided for. Uh, giving in the way that God commands expresses trust in God. When we are generous, it implies Okay, I know God in this relationship. He is the Lord. He, he doesn't change. As he cared for me in the past, he's going to care for me now by being generous. Even though sometimes it hurts, God is going to take care of me because he is the same. But in reality, these people were not doing that. What might have been a reason that they held back from God? I don't know all of it, but in the text... Between Haggai and Malachi, I identified at least a couple of things. And let me tell them to you. On the first place, in the first place, I think they had misplaced priorities. Misplaced priorities. Meaning, they probably were thinking in terms of food, house, protecting their kids, getting a dowry perhaps for future marriages tending their cattle, and the work of God. But God has a different set of priorities for them, and everything that God desires begins not with a list of things that we need, but with God. God's priorities begin with God. And the people of God, their priorities likewise must begin with God as well. In Haggai, there's an interesting charge that God placed on the people who would have been like the grandparents of the people in Malachi's day. And perhaps these people in Malachi's day learned a bit from their grandparents about how to handle their wealth. God says in Haggai 1, 3 to 6, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. A generation before Malachi's time, these people had prioritized upon their return to Israel, rebuilding their own houses while the house of God, the temple in Jerusalem, lay in disrepair and ruin. And God, after some time had passed for that generation to establish themselves, to even make nice houses, not just some shacks that they were 
able to kind of retrofit from whatever was left after the invasions. They're actually building themselves nice new houses and to establish themselves in the land again and start to produce some agriculture and to gather and to really breed their flocks. God observed something as hard as they were working. Their money didn't seem to go very far at all. And as much as they were trying to use what they harvested, even when they used it, people still struggled and were never full. They were never satisfied. Meanwhile, God charged them to then take their money and to apply it first and foremost on his priorities and to reorient themselves so that the solution here is not just, all right, I guess I'm, I'm not giving God his part. God, here you go. Now, that's not the response that God is looking for. God is looking for us to recognize him as our sovereign and our ruler and the one who is gracious to us all our lives and to reorient ourselves so that we begin with his priorities, giving to him first and then using the money that God has given us for the other categories that are necessary for life, that are necessary to meet our needs. There are misplaced priorities, but I think perhaps a greater challenge to us is cynicism. Cynicism. A problem that might be closer in the time of Malachi, and the reason that the people robbed God of his tithe was their cynicism of religious institutions and leaders. Their cynicism of religious institutions and leaders. In Malachi 2, 7-9, listen to what the Lord says about the priests who were in Israel in Malachi's day. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. The priests were guilty of playing favorites with God's people. They were dishonest, and they led people astray. No doubt a part of this favoritism was the desire of the priests to, to play favorites with the wealthy, so that they skipped over righteous judgments that were in favor of the poor. And imagine yourself, if you were struggling to make ends meet, and you were commanded by God to give a tenth of your produce, of your land, to a system that propped up corrupt priests, how would you respond? I think the people were very much like what we would tend to be in our day. And I think one of the reasons why churches continue to struggle financially is not because of misplaced priorities, although that is typically a reason. But I think there's a growing cynicism that we have toward religious institutions and leaders. We all know that in past years, Scandals have rocked 
the Roman Catholics, and we are not Roman Catholic. So how much closer did it hit when the corruption happened in the Southern Baptist Church? We are not Southern Baptists, but in my generation, I've seen leaders fall in sin, both sexual and in terms of money, and in abuse of power. So when we see all these things happening around us, what should we conclude? And I think in my generation and younger, there is that cynicism, that skepticism of religious institutions and leaders that leads many to conclude that it's just not reliable to give whatever money we do have to a local church or to, like, the church. Often they just think of it as it's just going out there and floating somewhere and we don't know where it goes. That's why there are a lot of wells being paid for in African villages right now. That's why more targeted expenses um, to plant a church somewhere in a remote village where people can use their money in targeted ways for targeted events where they have more acknowledgement and control over where that money goes. That sometimes, and I'm not saying those things are bad, please do those things, but sometimes that results from a cynicism that does not acknowledge the need to support a church where you are because of recognition of the troubles that are out there in the leadership and in the religious institutions. So what, would, what should we do? Well, as we come to the third point, I want us to see the Lord's challenge to his people. And if you see yourself in the misplaced priorities or even in the cynicism, I want you to consider the Lord's challenge to Israel, and I want to see how a bridge can be made from that time period to us here at 21st Century is uh, West Park, not Israel. All right, Malachi 3, 10 to 12. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord's challenge is to reprioritize our thinking about wealth. Not give in to cynicism, and here's how he puts it. Give me the full tithe and put me to the test. Give me the full tithe and put me to the test. I put both of those points together, for really, the Lord means them to be together. And that's where the title of the message comes from. Trust me and test me. Now, trust, we might get, put me to the test is a little more challenging. You know, admittedly, Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil in Matthew 4 or Luke 4, and was taken to the, the pinnacle of the temple, and Satan tempted him and said, just jump from here. And scores, legions of angels will catch you. Because it says in the Bible, they will not suffer or allow you to even have your foot dashed against a stone. And Jesus' response was, you will not put the Lord, your God, 
to the test. So on the one hand, there's a bad type of testing that we can do to the Lord. And that is with reckless abandonment, live according to the silly notions that pop into our heads sometimes about what we should do instead of going to the word of God and submitting to the clear revelation of God. But when God himself says, put me to the test, he means come to me and test out what I say about myself and see if it's true. Experience the truth of it. Now, in the time of Israel, the situation was the people were holding back from God. Again, what Dr. Thomas Schreiner said was a baseline 10% going up to about 20 to 24%. They were holding that back from God, and they were trying to make ends meet, and they were suffering economically. They were suffering financially, agriculturally. Now, God says, if you bring to me what I have commanded you to bring, you will experience an outpouring of blessing. He phrases it this way, I will open the windows of heaven. Now, this is not the prosperity gospel, all right? It's not praying to God, all right, God, I've committed to you my 24%. Now, you got to give me 100% return. Some people teach that nonsense and junk and say, bring it to God and he will return to you. He is obligated to do such and such. Ridiculous. That's not how God works. Oftentimes, when you commit to God and you give to him, sometimes difficulty may come. And the blessing that you find is that God supports you in the midst of it in ways that you never thought possible. And you experience grace in new in vibrant ways. In this time period, God's glory was tied to the success of Judah. And as they, in that small kingdom surrounded by pagan kingdoms who were far more powerful than they were, right on the, at one time, there was a Babylonian representative that came down to Judah before they were taken to exile. And because Judah's army was so small, the guy from Babylon said, I'll give you 2,000 horses brand new horses, if you could even find enough soldiers to sit on them to come out to fight against us. That's the kind of taunt that Judah received. God's desire was for that small, insignificant part of the world to shine with his glory so that as they obeyed God and did what he said, that they would experience the blessing so that others would come in so they would be restored to him, that they would know the God who does not change, the God who alone could save them. Right? This was God's design all along. If that happened, rain would come down. And God said that he would destroy the pests that were devouring their crops. And they would experience a renewal unlike anything that they had ever experienced up to that point because they were obedient and God was going to bless his own glory was tied to the people. Now, what does that mean for us? How can we bring in what we need to bring to God to entrust to him? You know, a bad bridge would be to say, all right, commit to bring 20% of your income at this special offering that we're going to do at the end of November. That's not the message today. And by God's grace, you won't hear that in any of the messages that we preach. 
That's a bridge too far. The bridge between that time of Malachi to now is learning how we can trust God and how we can put God to the test. Do you trust God? This is a question that I have for you. Do you trust God? You may say in response, well, I do, but when it comes to my money or my wealth and what I have, I don't have anything to give. I don't have anything to give. It might come out this way. You know, when I have, you know, you fill in the blank. When I have this, then I'll give. Sometimes, you know, whether you're in in college, maybe a high schooler here, maybe someone on a fixed income, you might want to, to give, but it might be difficult for you to give. I want to encourage you to take a first step to trust God so that even if it is a quarter that you can start giving regularly, that you will show your trust in God and begin somewhere by bringing to him a portion of your wealth and in some way giving it to God. Now, I will get to the point where I say, I think there's an application to give to your local church. Think about that name, the Lord of hosts. I haven't said anything about that yet from this section of Malachi 3, but you've noticed it again and again. God calls himself the Lord of hosts. Do you trust God? Then know him as the Lord of hosts. In the post-exiliac period of Malachi, as I've said, the postage stamp-sized Judah as a tiny province within the vast Persian empire had no army of its own. It is precisely in such times when God's people are painfully aware of how limited their own resources are that there is no greater comfort than the fact that the Lord has his invincible heavenly armies standing at the ready. You know, the Lord of hosts, as the the name of God, is used 100% of times in the Old Testament, and 43.6% of those times it's used in Malachi. For people who are seeing clearly their economic ruin, for people who are seeing clearly the demise of their stability. God says, I am the Lord of hosts. Do not forget that I command the unseen angel armies of heaven so that anything that you experience in this life will not be a threat that undoes you, but turn to me and see how I supply. It's like in the time of Elisha, when he and his servant were on the mountainside and they were seeing an invading army come. And the servant of Elisha said, Master, we're outnumbered. We're done. And Elisha prayed that the Lord would reveal to the servant what Elisha himself saw. And as he looked out, he saw the armies of God stretched as far as the horizon, ready to do battle against the invading army. God in heaven is in control of our lives, no matter what we face right now. We can start by giving to this local church. This this addresses the cynicism issue. And I want to talk for just a minute about the beauty of the local church. (laughs) The beauty of being in a local church and committing yourself as a member within the local church means that you say, I'm here to get to know my leaders, and I want my leaders to know me, and I want to be known of the people around me. 
developing relationships and committing in relationship. The local church is an expression of God's work in the world. And when we commit ourselves to one, we are saying, despite the abuses that are out there in religious institutions and religious leaders, I'm here to throw in my lot with this group of redeemed sinners and with this leadership whom I know. It doesn't do us good to say how all the corrupt leaders out there have disappointed us when we do have leadership who are committed to us here and are ready to walk through life with us. All of our elders here, all who have committed themselves here, the pastors on staff, the, the ministerial leaders that are among us are here because God has put us here to minister among the body as one of you. And God says, while a tithe is not emphasized in the New Testament, he does talk about how the local church is commanded to support those who labor to teach and preach the word. That's a command many places in the New Testament. We also see that when you give to West Park, I want you to understand that the first 10% of it, of whatever you give, goes to local missions and global missions. The first 10% of anything that you give. And as the monthly offering, as the weekly offerings are gathered, 10% is immediately pushed into global missions for the outreach of all that God is doing around the world through our global partners. That other 90% certainly pays for the ministers who are here, for those who are teaching and preaching the word, but likewise for the upkeep of the ministries, the construction of buildings, for ministry to adults, local outreach ministry, to youth and kids. In many ways, that money goes in very specific ways. If you didn't get a copy of the booklet called Generosity for Generations. There's one in the back on the corner. Jake will help to get those to you if you see him or others today. Um, just so you know what's going on here in the construction and the upkeep of the buildings. And I would say a couple of other things about this. First of all, I want to challenge you not only to trust God, but to put God to the test. And I just want to give you two things to think about as we close. Give to God first. Give to God first. Matthew 6, 33, familiar verse says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, the things of life, will be added to you. Commit to give to God first. What's the first thing that you think of when you get paid? I get paid on Fridays. I confess, some of the first things I think about are, who we can refill the pantry now, or the fridge, or, man, I've been, I've been wanting to go to that restaurant. My family and I get to go out because we've got a little bit of money now. Or there's that need that my wife has told me about or the kids have talked about. But if I want to be a Matthew 6.33 kind of guy and to give to God first, I want to grow in giving at least a tenth of what God gives me. That's my personal commitment. I think that if God required a tenth to be given in the Old Testament, which was the age of law, how much more in the age of grace when Jesus has shown me 
how gracious and good he is, would I not want to grow in an expression of faith in the one who has done everything for me by growing in my generosity? You might need to commit today that you will give something and that you will make it the priority that you have to give to this local church, but to commit it to God. And that you would give proportionally. That's the second challenge today in putting God to the test that you would give proportionally. If you can only give 20 a month right now, or even less, because maybe you're, you're prior, prioritizing paying down debt or providing for your families, that's okay. It's okay. But if you start there, don't stay there. Grow. You know, if you started to give $200 a month 10 years ago, and you did that every month, praise God. But if you've had a couple of raises since then, if you've had money come to you in ways you didn't expect, I challenge you to give proportionately to what you have received and to give to God and to the priorities that God has. Now, I need to conclude. I've gone on way too long. I want to challenge you when we think about the local church and celebrate the Lord's Supper here in just a moment, what we're doing when we do that. As I said earlier, cynicism can so easily derail us in our relationships from one another and our relationship to our leaders and our relationship to God. God is the ultimate in generosity. And he is the one who does not change. He is the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus has proven that God's agenda to give is bigger than anything we'd ever anticipated in the giving of his only son. I want to conclude with the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. I'll pray at the conclusion of this and invite the team back up. One other thing I want to point out is that we do have a blog. Matthew Goldstein wrote on November 3rd this past week, a really challenging article. I would invite you to go read it on our West Park blog, November 3rd. He, he talked about his radical challenge living as a freshman in college, giving away about half his income towards kingdom causes, uh, starting with his local church at the time. Now, this is the way he ends his, his, ser- his sermon. This is what I'm going to end my sermon, what Matthew said at the end of his article. At the end of the day, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Nothing else is worth it. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the team to come. Lord in heaven, thank you for the grace of generosity that begins with the God who does not change, the Lord of hosts who stands ready to fight the battles that his people face, the God of all eternity who is committed to his people even when we sin. Lord, forgive us of the sins that we commit. Lord, forgive us in that we have cheapened the display of your glory by prioritizing on things that you have said will be added to us, but we have not sought your kingdom first. But today, Lord, we seek your grace, your forgiveness, and that which you can, you can give us in this time, a refreshing reminder 
of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, he became poor, so that he might fulfill all righteousness for us and give us an inheritance that is not corrupt and cannot and will not ever be taken away. We thank you for this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have not received one of these cups, uh, we do have some extra in the back. Does anyone need one today? You did not grab one on the way in? All right, we'll be on the lookout if you do. Remember what the Lord said when he instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper. As he sat with his disciples commemorating the Passover meal, he took the bread and he envisioned a time when he would die on the cross, when he would pay for the sins of his people with his body that was bruised and hung on a cross. And he knew that his people, as they came to him, would be reminded every time they partook of the grace that he showed them. If you do not know the Lord Jesus today, this bread it, it doesn't mean anything for you yet. I would encourage you in this time of the bread and the cup to think about what Jesus has done and to know his grace and to take time to experience what he has done for you before you would call it to mind through partaking of the bread. But for those who know Christ today, Jesus commands you, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In a similar manner, the Lord took the cup and as he blessed it, he told his disciples that he would no longer drink wine with them until it was in his kingdom. And the Lord envisioned a time of richness, of blessing like we read about at the end of Malachi 3, how God desired his kingdom to be. Jesus knew that his blood shed for his people would be for the forgiveness of their sins and for the blessing that the world could never have, but only through him could experience. And the Lord said, take and drink. This is my blood that was shed for you. Drink all of it. Lord, we look forward to that day when we are with you. Until that time, help us to behold you. Help us to know you more. And help us to worship you in conclusion today with the anticipation of all that we will experience with Jesus. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.